0: Hebrews chapter 7. The title of this message is, Melchizedek was like the son of God. We're going to be talking about Melchizedek today. We're just going to read the first three verses. That's all that we'll cover this morning. And then we'll pray and get into it. Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, Who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils. Was first of all by the translation of his name king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the son of God he abides a priest perpetually. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We want to remind ourselves right now that it's all about you, Jesus. This text is all about you. In fact, the whole Bible is all about you. This church is all about you, and we as individuals want to be all about you. And so we want to have our understanding of you deepened now. Not that we might just know more, but that we might love more and experience more of your love. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and pour the love of the Father out in our hearts. We ask that you would instruct us. Jesus said, Holy Spirit, that you are the teacher of all things. And Jesus said that you would testify of and glorify him. So Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus Christ in this place. We ask that the Lord would be exalted in the teaching and in the preaching and in the text and in our hearts. And that you would do a work in us as we see a fuller picture of who Jesus is. We would have a greater desire to follow him, to obey, to align our lives with his. Work this in us, Lord. Give us attentive hearts and minds and spirits now. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So we're going to be studying chapter 7. It's going to take us some time to get through, at least this week and next week. And we're going to be talking about Melchizedek. And there's a lot that people think about Melchizedek. Some think that he was, well, we'll get to what some people think he was in a moment. But before we get to that, we want to remember what the author of the book of Hebrews said in chapter 5, verse 11. Okay? Chapter 5, verse 11. He said, concerning him, he's speaking here of the relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ, that analogous relationship... Concerning him, we have much to say, but it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So the author is wanting to explain some of the deep things as to the identity and the person and the work of Jesus Christ to his audience. But he realizes it's going to be difficult for them to understand because they had become dull of hearing or spiritually dull. And we spoke about that a few weeks ago. And so they were going to have a problem, quite frankly, understanding some of these relationships, some of these insights into the person of Jesus Christ. Now, our problem is not the same. At least I hope our problem is not the same. That we want to be characterized as spiritually dull or dull of hearing. But we do have a problem when it comes to studying the rest of the book of Hebrews. Our problem, at least for most of us, is that we haven't come from a Jewish background And we don't understand the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices that they made. For most of us, that's the problem. We haven't come from a Jewish background. And we haven't come from a Jewish background that was prior 70 AD when the temple was still happening and the sacrifices were still happening. And so that's sort of a hindrance to our understanding, but we can overcome that, amen? We can understand. We do believe in the doctrine of perspicuity, which is an old silly word for clarity. We believe in the doctrine of clarity that God wrote the Bible to be understood by people. And so we can understand this. We're just gonna have to be careful to define a few terms and take our time and paint a few pictures. So the first term that I wanna define for you this morning that you'll need to know for the rest of Hebrews 7 is Levitical. Levitical. We'll be talking about the Levitical priesthood, and we'll be talking about Levitical sacrifices. Where do we get the word Levitical? Well, it comes from Levi. Who is Levi? Levi was one of the sons of Jacob, and he became one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi. And it was from the tribe that the priests came. And it was from the tribe that those who would work in the temple, with the temple, and prior to that, the tabernacle came. They all came from the tribe of Levi. Those that would carry the tabernacle and pack it up and set it up during the wilderness experience, those who would work in the temple daily, they all came from the tribe of Levi. So when we say Levitical priesthood, we're defining... In the context of the whole world, we're defining the priesthood that we're talking about because there's been a lot of people who claim to be priests. We're talking about the Old Testament Jewish priests that ministered in the tabernacle and then later on when it was built, the temple. So that's what the Levitical priesthood is and they're all throughout the Old Testament. When we say Levitical sacrifices, those were sacrifices that were made by Levitical priests According to Levitical law, that is a law given by Moses that governed the ministry of the tribe of Levi. Capish? Capish? Okay, now, having defined that term, I want to give you the main point of the chapter. It's very simple. The main point of this chapter is that Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. Very simple. Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. That doesn't hit us very hard. We don't hear that and it's like, wham. We're not like, whoa, revelation. Because once again, we're not coming from that Jewish context that has grown up with it, has always known, and whose people knew for thousands of years the Levitical priesthood and the Levitical sacrifices. If you were in the first century and the temple was still standing and you were of Jewish descent and somebody is saying to you, Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood, that's a profound statement. The profundity of it is somewhat lost upon us as Gentiles, but let's not miss it as students of the Bible. That's very important. And later on in the chapter, the idea will develop that he's not only better than the Levitical priesthood, he's better than the covenant which they served. And we'll get to that in a week or 12. (laughs) One thing we want to remember concerning the context of the book is that the original recipients of this letter were Jewish Christians who were being tempted to go back into Judaism because it was hard for them to follow Jesus at the time. They were living in the Roman Empire. Persecution was being unleashed and was increasing in the Roman Empire. It was getting hard to be a Christian in that culture at that time. And so some of them were tempted to go back to Judaism, which would mean going back to the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical worship structure, Levitical sacrifices for the atoning of sins. So that's what they were considering doing. And so what the author wants to do is thoroughly convince them of the superiority of Jesus and his priesthood. And in doing that, he's gonna use someone named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, I pronounce it slightly incorrect. It's actually Melchizedek, but that's harder to say. So I'm just gonna say Melchizedek for the next lifetime. He brings in this figure, Melchizedek, He's going to use him and present him as analogous to Jesus, his person and his work. Melchizedek is going to be, for the author, analogous to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Said differently, he is going to emerge as a type of Jesus Christ. What does it mean, a type? The Bible is full of typology. And there's all sorts of Christological typologies types of Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament and Melchizedek is one of them. What is a type? Let's define that. A type is a person or thing symbolizing or exemplifying the ideal or defining characteristics of something. So it's a symbol or it's a thing that illustrates, that is analogous to, that exemplifies some component of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So Melchizedek is a type of Jesus Christ, a foreshadow, you might say, of the person in the work of Jesus Christ. The reason that the author of the book of Hebrews is gonna choose Melchizedek out of all the other Old Testament examples he could have chosen is because this Melchizedek is this mysterious Old Testament figure. And he's only mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Only a total of about four verses in the whole Old Testament is this cat even mentioned. Although he's mentioned only twice, he's seen in a very weighty manner. In the Jewish mindset, he's like a really big deal, a heavy hitter, so to speak. One of the reasons is this. He's spoken of in Genesis 14, and we'll talk about that vignette next week. We'll unpack it for you next week, Genesis 14. He's spoken of there, and in Genesis 14, he's honored by Abraham. It was mentioned in our text, where it says that Abraham met him in verse 1, and then Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and then in verse 2, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Here's the deal. In that ancient culture, and this is really for next week, tithing was showing honor to someone else. It was a lot of things, but at the very least, it was showing honor. And when someone blessed someone else, it was considered the greater position blessing the lesser. In the Jewish mind, all you have to do to say that somebody is the bomb, that somebody is like, put out, way up here, all you have to do is say, hey, they were honored by Abraham. If you say, Father Abraham honored this guy, the Jewish mind goes, this guy's a big deal. This guy's huge. And when he says right here in the opening of chapter seven that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and Abraham tithed to him, it was putting Melchizedek in a very high position in the Hebraic mindset. The second time that Melchizedek is mentioned is in Psalm 110 verse four. And the Jews have always recognized Psalm 110 as a kingly and messianic psalm. It's a psalm that foreshadows Jesus as the Messiah, his kingship, and his ministry. And it was generally accepted by Jews to be such. And so when Melchizedek, though mentioned scantily in the Old Testament, is mentioned in reference to Abraham honoring him and him being connected with the person in the ministry of Messiah, This guy is huge. And so the author then wants to use Melchizedek to create some imagery of the person of Jesus Christ and some foreshadowing that pointed to the person of Jesus Christ. And here's what's interesting about that. Again, this book is written by a Jewish scholar. And this is very Jewish, at least ancient Jewish. He finds as much importance with what was not said about Melchizedek as with what was said about Melchizedek. For the Jewish mind, for the author, there was as much divine inspiration in the silences of the Bible as there was in the statements of the Bible. And it was a common rabbinical method of interpretation to draw biblical conclusions from silence. In other words, the Bible doesn't say this Therefore, very common in Jewish thought of the time. And in drawing some conclusions about Melchizedek as being analogous to Jesus Christ, you've got to understand that the author is using that sort of reasoning. He's coming from that place. That what the Bible didn't say about Melchizedek is just as important as to what it did say about Melchizedek and him being a type of Jesus Christ. And so what you're beginning to see is that the arguments of chapter 7 are very Old Testament and very Jewish in nature. Therefore, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge for some of us to follow. I already see some of you getting a little glazed over. (laughs) Please don't do that. This stuff is very important. Please engage your heart and your mind and pay attention. Because it's such a strong Jewish context, it may be difficult. But if you have a good handle on the Old Testament, you'll be just fine. This will be wonderful for you. This chapter, if you don't have a handle on the Old Testament, is going to be a steep learning curve for you, but you can do it. No problem. We've got no problem with steep learning curves. It's the word of God. God wants us to understand and lay hold of it and be blessed by it so we could do it. I think what will help us in approaching this text is to know that it's not about Melchizedek. A lot of people have been saying to me as I was preparing for this sermon, oh Mount Kazedek, I can't wait to hear about Mount Kazedek. I wanted to know about Mount Kazedek, I'm gonna disappoint you. <laughs> it's not about Mount Kesedek. the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. And this chapter is about Jesus Christ. And Mount Kazedek only existed to bring glory to Jesus Christ and to shed some light on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The big picture that this chapter wants us to get. And what the original readers desperately needed to know is that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament picture painted 2,000 years earlier in the person of Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek was so big in the Jewish mind. He wants them to know that Jesus perfectly fulfilled that 2,000-year-old picture. Notice what it says at the end of verse 3. It says concerning Melchizedek, he was made like the Son of God. He was made like the Son of God. Now, when you take the previous description given to us in verse 3, that he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, many people reading verse 3 have come to the conclusion that Melchizedek was a theophany or a Christophany. What is a theophany? A theophany is an appearance of God in some recognizable human form. We have them throughout the Old Testament. What is a Christophany or a Christophany? It's a pre-incarnate appearance of the person of Jesus Christ. An Old Testament appearance of the person of Jesus Christ, okay? Such as when Daniel was chilling on the river and the Lord appeared to him. So many people reading that description thought that can only be descriptive of somebody who is eternal, and so it must be a theophany or a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I personally don't think that's the case. I'll tell you why I don't think that's the case in a moment, nor do I think that Melchizedek was some sort of angelic being. That's another popular idea that some have suggested, that he was an angelic being. That idea was made popular by the Gnostics in the early centuries AD that thought he was the highest of angelic beings. But there is absolutely no reason in Scripture to say that Melchizedek would be an angel. Only certain heretics in centuries past have done that. Now, when it says that he was made like the Son of God, here's what I believe is being said. That his position is and his office are analogous to or a type of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Very simple. The New Living Translation helps us to understand it. It says concerning Melchizedek, he remains a priest forever resembling the Son of God. That's a little clearer language for us. Resembling the Son of God. Now, here's a few reasons why I do not think Melchizedek is a theophany or a Christophany. Okay, a few reasons, and this is of interest to a few of you. (laughs) Number one, it doesn't make much sense to call Jesus a priest in the order of himself. Notice that's been one of the primary assertions of the last couple chapters is that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. It doesn't make very much sense to call Jesus a priest in the order of himself. Number two, The text says he was like the Son of God, not he was the Son of God. As the New Living Translation puts it, I believe rightly, he resembled the Son of God. Number three, only slightly more complicated, the Greek verb used in verse three for being made means to make like or similar. That's what it means, to make like or similar. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. To make like or similar. It doesn't mean to be made of the actual substance or essence of something else. Just to be made like or similar. Number four. The fourth reason I don't believe it's a Christophany or theophany. Is that the only other mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament other than Genesis 14? Is Psalm 110 verse 4 which distinguishes the Messiah from Melchizedek very clearly. It says that the Messiah would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So there's a clear distinction between the two persons. Reason number five. According to Hebrews chapter five, verse one, one of the prerequisites for a high priest is that he had to be a human. You remember that? Chapter five, verse one, look at it real quick. We talked about it at length when we studied it. For every high priest taken among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. So, one of the requirements for the high priest in God's economy was that the high priest had to be a man. Before that time, before, excuse me, the time of Jesus' incarnation, he was not a man. Jesus did not become a man until the incarnation. That's when he became a man. Before that time, he definitely appeared in the form of a man. That's called a Christophany. In the form of a man, but not as an actual man. Therefore, he could not have been a priest in Genesis 14 because that was prior to the incarnation. And God said that priests are taken from among men. He didn't become a man until the incarnation. So he wouldn't have been a priest in Genesis 14. And this really helps us understand that, the final point. Reason number six, Old Testament theophanies and Christophanies appeared and disappeared. They appeared for a moment to accomplish a purpose and then they were gone. They did not hold long-term occupations or offices in human flesh. But who was Melchizedek? Melchizedek was a Jebusite king of Salem, later would be called Jerusalem. And to be a king of a place, you've got to be around there for a little while. So it would have meant that God or Jesus Christ would have had to been a Jebusite king that hung around Salem for some time. And that's just not the way that Christophanies or Theophanies work. All that to say, as exciting and mysterious as Melchizedek is, I don't think he's an angel, nor is he a Christophany. He was a Jebusite king who lived about 2,000 years before Jesus Christ that God got a hold of to point to Jesus Christ. That's who he was, and that's all he was. A Jebusite king, existing about 2,000 years before the Lord, that the God of the universe got a hold of to point to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what we see in verses 1 through 3 then of Hebrews 7, are four similarities between Melchizedek and the Messiah. The first thing that we see is that Melchizedek was a priest king, okay? Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. He was a priest king. It doesn't surprise us that he was a king. Uh, Jerusalem at the time was a city-state, and the city-states in that area at that time had kings over them. So he was just the king of Salem, the king of little Jerusalem there. It doesn't surprise us that he was a king. It may surprise us that he was a priest of the Most High God because Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation hasn't even been birthed yet. The Levitical priesthood hasn't even been invented by God, so to speak, and yet this guy is a priest of the Most High God. How is that? God always has a remnant. He's been the God of the universe since the beginning of time. His Godship didn't start when Israel was birthed. He didn't become God when Jacob became. He's always been God. He's always had those who were his. And isn't it cool? The Bible tells us that God would set his name in the city of Jerusalem perpetually. And he grabbed this old Jebusite king and said, you're gonna be a priest to me. Before anybody understood what that meant, God dealt with this guy. So the point though is this. Melchizedek was a priest king. He was both. In the Jewish mindset, which is the way we've got to approach this book, that was profound and unique. Because God in the ancient nation of Israel had created a balance of power. Nobody was allowed to be priest and king. If you were one, you were not the other. You were either priest or king. Nobody was allowed to be both of them. There were a couple kings, namely Saul and uh, some other cats, Hezekiah, somebody, that tried to act like a priest at one time and God dealt with them very harshly. One of them had the kingdom removed. One of them was struck with leprosy. So nobody in Israel was supposed to be priest and king. Here's how God made sure that there would always be that separation of powers. He said that the priests would only come from the tribe of Levi and the family of David within the tribe of Levi. Those would be the priests. And the kings would only come from the tribe of Judah and the family of David within the tribe of Judah. So nobody could ever be both because they either were from the tribe of Levi or they were from the tribe of Judah. So they were either gonna be a priest or a king or neither, but they were not gonna be a both. What's interesting about Melchizedek is that he was a both. He was a priest and a king. He was a both, this guy. Melchizedek was a priest and king and Jesus is presented in the book of Hebrews as a priest-king in the order of Melchizedek. That's how he is a priest is in the order of Melchizedek. How he is a king is according to the tribe of Judah and the family of David. He's the son of David. He's gonna rule and reign on David's throne. Okay, so Jesus Christ comes along and is presented to the Jewish nation in the incarnation and in his work as a priest king. Now, they should have been hip to this gig, because the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be both priest and king. As unique as profound as wonderful as that was, the Old Testament said that the Messiah would be that. Zechariah chapter six verse thirteen. We have it on the screen for you. Zechariah six thirteen. It says, "Yes, it is He speaking of Messiah, who will build the temple of the Lord." And he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne, thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace, mark that word, the council of peace will be between the two offices. The profundity of that statement when it was given prophetically to Zechariah was radical. That there would be a priest on the throne. That there was one coming who would build the temple that would be a priest and a king and it is the person of Jesus Christ. And by the way, the book of Ezekiel is clear that when Messiah comes again, we're talking about the second coming now, when Messiah comes again, he will build the temple in Jerusalem. There will be a millennium temple and we'll look at some of the stuff that will be happening there in just a few moments. So, Messiah was understood, at least should have been understood, as one who would be a priest and king and therefore unique in the land and among the people of Israel. And Jesus takes the fullness of this office and this work at the second coming. Now let's go to what I referenced. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 14. Turn there. Zechariah chapter 14. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14, it's about the Lord and the second coming of the Lord. And by the way, you're in this chapter. See if you could spot yourself as we read a few verses. Zechariah chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem, definitely have seen that happening in our lifetime, to battle, and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravaged, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Look at verse three. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. This is a picture of the battle of Armageddon. Later on, read Revelation chapter 16 and Revelation chapter 19. There we have the battle of Armageddon and what it is is a gathering of the nations under the leadership of the Antichrist coming against Jerusalem. It's a satanic work against Jerusalem because that is the city where God has put his name forever and for which God has a plan that commingles with his plan for the nation of Israel. And if the Antichrist could thwart that plan, then he could show God to be a liar. And so the armies of the Antichrist are gathered in the valley of Jezreel, the valley of Armageddon, where we've gone on our Israel tours. It's not a mythological place, it's an actual location in Israel. We've been there. They're gathered in the end time scenario against Jerusalem to prove God a liar. And anytime you do that to God, what does He do? Shows up some way. So in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus Christ comes. And remember, he comes on cavallo blanco. He comes on the white horse. And we come with him on little horses. And at that time, he defeats the Antichrist and his armies. And that is the event being spoken of here in Zechariah 14, chapter 3, or verse 3. And then after that, he will enter Jerusalem and he'll rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. So verse three again, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, okay? He's already gone to the Jezreel Valley, defeated the Antichrist and his armies. He comes south to the Mount of Olives adjacent to Jerusalem. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountains will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. When Jesus Christ comes again, this is foundational to Christianity. This is one of those non-negotiables. That Jesus Christ is coming again and it's a literal, physical coming. This is foundational to Christianity. This is one of the non-negotiables. You can't call yourself a Christian and not believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ because it's from Genesis to Revelation. It's spoken of eight times as frequently as the first coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible is explicit that Jesus Christ is coming again literally and physically. I know as we're trapped in our little worldly tangible bubbles, it seems hard to believe. But historically speaking, he did come the first time, didn't he? And the Bible is adamant that he is coming again. And so you either accept that or reject that. And if you reject that, you're not a Christian because you're rejecting one of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. That's part of it. Jesus Christ is coming again, literally and physically. And when he comes, he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's pretty cool that it says the Mount of Olives will be split in two. On July 11th, 1927, geologists found a fault line running under the Mount of Olives from east to west. A big, giant fault line. Now, Jesus Christ don't need no fault line if he wants to bust the mountain open, he can bust the mountain open. He doesn't need the fault line. But it's one of those little prophetic bones that the Lord throws us to say, look, are you paying attention? I'm coming. That where he said the mountain, and in the direction that he said the mountain would be split in two, is a fault line running right under the Mount of Olives. There it is. Just waiting for the Lord to come and just, "But crack that thing. Verse five, and you will flee by the valley of my mountains For the valley of the mountains will reach Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Who's that? That's us. There we are. I told you you were in this chapter. You're also in Revelation 19.14. You are so cool. You made Zechariah and Revelation, two of the best books in the whole Bible. Verse six, and it will come about in that day that there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it'll be a unique day, okay? It's not normal. It's not normal. It'll be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Read the last two chapters of Revelation later on and you'll see what that source of light is. Not going to tell you. <laughs> and it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the Eastern Sea, that is the Dead Sea, and the other half toward the Western Sea, that is the Mediterranean. And it will be in summer as well as in winter. Notice that when Jesus Christ comes again, there's geological changes that are happening. And there's this water that begins to flow out of that break in the Mount of Olives. Under Mount Zion, under the Temple Mount, and then down southward through that dry, arid land toward uh, the Dead Sea. Read later on Ezekiel chapter 47 you'll see that the Dead Sea will be revived. It's called the Dead Sea. The salinity is too high in it. Nothing lives in it. It'll be revived and in the millennial kingdom, it'll be turned into a fishing port. Ezekiel 47, it'll be a fishing port. Why? Because living waters will come from the temple mount when Jesus is ruling and reigning and will flow down to the Dead Sea and it will become alive. It will be a miracle because it will still be the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest spot in the face of the earth. Therefore, no water flows out of it. Therefore, it stagnates and dies. It'll be a miracle of God. Living waters will flow into it. It will become alive. It will be a fishing port. That will be a significant picture of new life in the Messiah as evidence in the millennial kingdom. And there will be trees that give forth their fruit over and over again that pop up along the side of that river of living water that flows. So cool. It's really fun. It's really cool. Now, Look what the next verse says. Verse nine. This is what I meant to read. (laughs) All the rest was just for fun. Verse nine. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. That statement ought to be like honey to your hearts. The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. And his name, the only one. Only one. Look at verse 11 for time. We'll finish in verse 11. And people will live in it and there will be no more curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Jerusalem will experience peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. The world will know no peace until Jesus Christ comes again. Anything prior to that is pseudo peace. Partial peace Temporary peace. The world will know no peace until Jesus Christ comes again and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that is part of our inheritance. That is part of the glory that we look forward to is the Lord's coming again and ruling and reigning. Notice that when this king comes that he is a king of peace. Now, what we need to ask ourselves in light of this because we need to make Bible prophecy applicable is this. Is he king over your life right now? That's the important question. Because the kingdom of God is both here and future. It is both now and later. And for those of us that are Christians, the kingdom of God is now. And the kingdom is where the king rules. And so we can't just get happy about the millennial kingdom and not think about right now. The question for us right now, is Jesus the king in your life? The Old Testament prophecy said that he would be priest and king. He's accomplished part of his priestly work through the finished work of the cross. But now you gotta let him be king of your life. Is he ruling and is he reigning? If Jesus Christ is a king of your life, then the tone and tenor of your life is worship. I'm not talking about sing song right now. That's a component of what worship is when we get together and sing songs. That's part of it, but that's not worship in the broad definition Worship is how we live. It is not doing whatever you want to do and calling it worship because you're a Christian. Man, I could just beat somebody when they define it that way. My whole life is worship. No, your life is funky. Don't call that worship. Worship to Jesus Christ is when we live in obedience. Worship is adoration. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. What is a lifestyle of worship? It's a lifestyle of submission to King Jesus. It's a lifestyle of obedience. It's a lifestyle of following, loving, adoring, experiencing him, letting him rule and reign in our lives. And the more submitted our lives become, the more worshipful they are. And that's part of the goal of the Christian life, and that's part of the process of sanctification, is letting Jesus rule and reign in more areas of our lives. Quite frankly, we've all got areas that are outposts of rebellion. They're supposed to be in the kingdom, but they're strongholds for the flesh. They're little rebellious pockets, and they're trying to have their own king. We've got to surrender those regions to the Lord. We've all got them little rebellious areas. We see a lifestyle of worship is laying down those rebellions in those strongholds and surrendering them to the kingship of Jesus Christ. Now, he invites us to do so. He invites us. He said, Come and follow me, right? Come and follow me. He invites us into a lifestyle of worship. If we reject that invitation by holding on to those little pockets of rebellion, Then it's only a matter of time until we experience spiritual dryness. Spiritual dryness. I want to illustrate this for you from a prophetic vignette. Turn the page, perhaps, in your Bible, at least in mine, to verse 16 of Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This is a trippy verse. Jesus is going to come. He's going to set up the millennial kingdom. He's ruling and reigning on the throne of David from Jerusalem. He's ruling over all the nations. And once a year, there will be an invitation to all the nations to come and worship the King, Jesus Christ, in Jerusalem. There will be an issue, an invitation, and it will be during the season of the Feast of Booths. It's a Jewish celebration spoken about in Leviticus 23 and other places. It's also called Sukkot. And if you uh, are in a Jewish neighborhood, perhaps in L.A. or Woodland Hills or somewhere like that, or New York, or if you're in Israel... Uh, you will see that at Sukkot, at the Feast of Booths every year, Jews, observant Jews, go outside their house and they build little shelters. Little shelters. And we were, on our last Israel trip, we were in Israel at this time during the Feast of Booths and even the hotels build little shelters outside the hotels and at night, the observant Jews will go and sleep in them. It was to commemorate and to celebrate the Exodus experience that God brought His people out of slavery. Can I get an Amen that God brought his people out of slavery, that they were once slaves, that God heard their cries, that he delivered them, and now they were free. They might have been wandering in the wilderness and camping in booths, in tents, but they were free nonetheless. And so every year, all observant Jews for all time immemorial and future are to build a little booth at this time And the booth, it's required that there's cracks through which you could see the sky at night. And that sky reminds you of the Lord of hosts who is your provision. And so the whole celebration is the fact that we were once slaves and we've been brought into freedom and we need to remember the Lord who is over us, the Lord who is king, who is our provider. And all the nations in the millennial kingdom will be invited to come and worship the king and celebrate the feast of booths. What's trippy to me They must be Christians. They're just like you and I because not all of them go. The the, the invitation is issued, come worship the Lord. Well, it happens here every Sunday. What are you laughing at? It happens here every Sunday. Dominic stands up and he's got his guitar and he says, let's worship the Lord. And some people do and some people don't. I know, it's amazing to me. So look what it says in verse 17. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now the question is, is Jesus Christ the king over your life? Not just have you made him savior, but have you made him king? Because you're only laying hold of half of his ministry, the priestly ministry, if he's your savior. Like he's a priest king. And bringing our lives into submission to the king is worship. And Jesus' invitation to pick up the cross, deny ourselves, and follow him is the invitation to a life of worship. And when we say no, and we do, when we say no, it is inevitable that the rain will cease, so to speak. Dry times, spiritually speaking, will come into our lives. Times where we begin to feel lost, wandering, parched, unsatisfied, needy, searching. But you see, if you stick with Jesus, then you're able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Makes me lie down in green pastures. Makes me drink from still waters. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as long as we're responding to the invitation of a lifestyle of worship, there will be rivers of living water. We'll have a lush Christian life. It'll be alive and vibrant. But the more we refuse the Lord and lock him out of those areas, we start to get dry. So now the question is this. Are you feeling spiritually dry? Gotta start to ask yourself, and ask the Lord, what's going on in my life? Lord, is there any way that I've been neglecting, saying no to the invitation to a lifestyle of worship? Now remember, a lifestyle of worship is a celebration. It's a celebration that we've been brought out of slavery. That's what the Feast of Booths was all about. They've been brought out of slavery. I mean, their children were killed. Their backs were laid bare at the whips of the Egyptians. They were tormented, tortured, and oppressed. And it's a perfect picture of humanity apart from Jesus Christ. But we who have come to the cross and repented of our sins, we've been delivered from slavery. And we've been brought into freedom and newness of life. And whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And the life is to be a celebration of that freedom. Life is to be a continual commemoration of that event where we came to the cross and we were set free and the Red Sea parted, so to speak, and we went across on dry land and the Lord is our provision and our strength. That's what the Christian life is meant to be. That's what we're invited into. And Melchizedek was a priest and a king. A picture of Jesus Christ who would be priest and king. Our responsibility. Our responsibility is to let him be the king, to let him rule and reign. The second point, now, I had four. We're not going to get to them. (laughs) I'm cool with that. We'll just do the second one and call it good. Okay, so the second and final point is that Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and peace. Developing further, unpacking further the idea of Jesus as king. Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and peace. We see in verse two, oh boy, go back to Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews chapter seven. The second part of verse two says that by the translation of his name, Melchizedek is king of righteousness and then also king of Salem which is the king of peace. So Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and peace. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And he was a king of Salem. Salem means peace. That's why Jerusalem is called the city of peace. So then in this figure, in this imagery, in this foreshadowing, Melchizedek is a king of righteousness and the king of peace. And so in that way, Melchizedek typified or was a type of the royalty of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, it will be written both on his robe and his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? And then Isaiah, in a prophecy about the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming, speaks of what his reign would be like. We have it on the screen, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Very familiar passage, Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Who's it talking about? Jesus. Jesus. Can you say it louder, please? Who's it talking about? That's the way we say Jesus. (laughs) Verse 7, look at this. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Second coming language now. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Notice what it says about Jesus in his office of king. That he too is a king of peace and of righteousness. There will be no end to the increase of the government or peace and he will uphold it with justice and righteousness. So Jesus is a king of peace and righteousness. Isaiah 9, 6, in fact, calls him the prince of peace. Jeremiah 23, 6 calls him the Lord our righteousness. The New Testament identifies Jesus specifically as Jesus Christ, the righteous one in 1 John 1, 2. And our righteousness in 1 Corinthians 1, 30. So Jesus is the king of righteousness. Likewise, the New Testament says that he himself is our peace. Here's something the whole world is looking for, peace. He himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. So this is very cool. Jesus brings righteousness and peace together in his person and office. Jesus is the person and the king of righteousness and peace. I love the imagery that was painted by the psalmist in Psalm, 86, verse, uh, Psalm 85 verse 10. Look what it says. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That is a description of the person of Jesus Christ. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, It is also fitting that the imagery of righteousness and peace are present in Melchizedek as a type of Jesus Christ because of the nature of the gospel. Righteousness and peace have everything to do with the gospel because in terms of the gospel, peace with God is based on the righteousness of God. Can't get this wrong. Peace with God is based on the righteousness of God. Of God. The OT began to speak about it in Isaiah 32 17 when it said, And the work of righteousness will be peace. We see it fully revealed in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. This is, Having been justified by faith, justified, having been made righteous, we could say, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice. We have been made righteous. We have been justified by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 ties it all together. It says, God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to become sin on our behalf, that is the cross, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, Jesus is called the righteous one. But when we come to him and repent of our sins and trust his finished work of the cross, then we are identified in him and with him through the new birth, and we are declared righteous by God. And therefore, we have peace with God. Before that, we are rebellious. No peace with God when we come to Jesus Christ by faith and repent of our sins, we are made righteous, being identified with him, and now we have peace with God because we have the righteousness of Christ. That is the gospel message. We have peace with God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the king of righteousness and peace. The question becomes... Are you letting his reign of righteousness be in your life? Are you letting his reign of peace be in your life? He's the king of righteousness and peace. We have been made righteous. There's this nuance in the Greek language. There's a difference between an indicative verb and an imperative verb. Okay, an indicative verb is a simple statement. The door is shut. That's an indicative verb, okay? Shut there, the door is shut, indicative statement. Imperative is shut the door. You need to do something. Follow me. I know this is Greek to you, but follow me. (laughs) Follow me. What religion gives us are imperatives. Religion says, go be righteous. Come on, do righteous things. Work real hard. Act righteous. At least put on your righteous mask. Religion says go and work real hard and try to be righteous. It's an imperative. What the cross of Jesus Christ does is declare us righteous. It's indicative. It doesn't say be righteous. It says you are righteous. We have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, all we need to do is let him reign. We don't need to try anymore. We don't need to strive. We don't need to act. We don't need to work. We just let the king of righteousness rule in our lives. We are righteous. So let it come forth. Let Christ in you come forth. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. It's not imperative anymore. It's an indicative. Just be it. See striving and know that he's God and you've been made righteous in him. So not only the king of righteousness, he's a king of peace. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is the last thing I'll say. Are you letting his reign of peace rule in your life? The Bible says in Colossians 3 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Here's what that means. As Christians, you have peace. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. That's what he said. Not as the world gives my peace I give to you. Now, he's the prince of peace. So he's got perfect peace. <laughs> he's in control of all things. He gives us peace. As Christians, we have peace. But there are times where that peace seems to be lacking, where that peace is disturbed. What's happening there? You're not letting the peace rule in your lives. Let the peace of Christ rule in your lives. That Greek word rule could be translated for us, be an umpire. In other words, Let the peace that you have as a Christian bought by the blood of Jesus Christ act as an umpire in your life. What does an umpire do? Very simply, he either cries fair or foul. So when you're making a decision in life, you need to listen to the peace in the person of Jesus Christ and let it call fair or foul. You already have peace. If you're going in a wrong direction, that peace will be disturbed there will be a disturbance in that peace that you have from Jesus Christ. There will be a check in your spirit, some people call it. There'll be some nagging feeling of, I can't go there, I can't do that, that doesn't seem right. And when you then obey your conscience there, given to you by God, then you're letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You've brought your life under the kingship of Jesus Christ because you didn't go against the peace. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking, okay, then if I make a right decision, I should have this influx of peace, right? This new peace and this big peace experience. That's not the way it works. You already have peace. What helps us make a right decision? The peace abides. The peace remains. It's undisturbed. What you're doing is consistent with the word, and the peace abides. The peace remains. It's undisturbed. Don't look for some big new peace. Jesus already said, my peace I give to you. You got peace. But don't go against the peace. Don't go against the check in the Spirit. Let the peace of Christ act as an umpire in your life, calling fair or foul. And when he says foul, don't go there. When you don't go there, you're letting him be the king of peace for you. When he says fair and you go there, you're letting him be the king of peace for you. Learn to obey the Lord. Otherwise, your conscience will become seared, your heart will get hard, and you can't discern the peace anymore. Then life is very complicated. It's so much better to just let him be the king of peace for us, amen, amen. Amen. Lord, we praise you for these beautiful truths. These things are wonderful to us, Lord. And Lord, we ask now that you would help us to live them. Lord, help us. Help us to submit to your kingship. Rule and reign in our lives in righteousness, Lord, and in peace. Lord, you're worthy to rule and reign. We're sorry that we have rebellious little pockets, little strongholds, little regions that are in rebellion to your kingship. Holy Spirit, come help us submit them to the king of righteousness and peace. Lord, lead us in paths of righteousness for thy name's sake. You are our shepherd. Lead us into green pastures and beside still waters. Lord, you're the one that prepares a banqueting table for us in the presence of our enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will surround us all of our days. You are our shepherd. Shepherd us, Lord Jesus, into places of righteousness and peace. Lord, for those of us that need to repent, help us to repent. Give us humble hearts. Soften hard hearts. Make us a humble people, Lord. Prayer team is here if you need help. Communion is here to remember the work of the priest and the king.